Welcome everybody. We started. Um, okay, we'll give it one minute for everybody to join. Um, welcome to all those who are joining us. We are actually going to be streaming on YouTube as well, and this class will be saved. Um, we are starting a brand new series on Neo Hasidus, and we're going to start tonight where it all began uh, back in the 1700s. So, yay, welcome, Nicole. Hi, hi, everybody joining. Thank you so much. This is very exciting. Um, if any of you watched Thank You Hashem Stories, I did a little promo video this afternoon, um, just talking a little bit about what we are going to be learning in this series. And I think that when it comes to anything Thank You Hashem, the first number one question I get is, oh my gosh, do you have any swag in your house? Can you bring me a bracelet to work, a baseball cap? You know, and people think it's a lot of it is about the swag, and it's definitely very much about the swag, but it also really is about spreading the message of Hasidus. And I think it's only fair that all of us get acquainted where Hasidus began. So tonight's class is going to be part one. We're back. So um, when we talk about Hasidus, and a lot of the teachings that I have learned myself is from Ramosha Weinberger, the Rav Avish Kodesh, as well as Rav Yossi Zakatinsky. Um, and a lot of the teachings that I'm giving over are classes that I've heard from them, information that I myself have learned. Um, but very recently I've listened to Sogis and Hasidus, which is from Ramosha Weinberger, and he explained the initial story of Hasidus that, awoke, that woke me up, I wanna say about four and a half years ago. So welcome to this brand new series. So when we talk about Hasidus, um, Ramosh Weinberger actually compares it to Divriel Kimchayim. How are you, sir, over there? <laughs> Talks about the words of the living God. This is not necessarily a system that is, you know, was, was brought down in a certain way that was very, you know, for example, let's say Torah Sinai, right? Where we had, you know, the Ten Commandments and those are what we glean all our information from. When it comes to Hasidus, there's something a little bit different here where it was kind of like a light that entered this world and slowly, slowly lit up the world. Now, it was not a cultural and it was not a social movement. It was actually, the words of Ramosh Weinberger was, it was a mahapecha. It was an absolute revolution. Now, when we think of the word revolution, right, the first thing that comes to my mind is like the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Industrial Revolution. And when it comes to revolution, there needs to be, um, well, it's actually where everything is like turned upside down. There are actually four stages to um, every revolution, to every mahapecha. So let's try to go understand what these four steps are, and then we'll see how Hasidus fits actually right into this example. So the first step of a mahapecha, of a revolution, is that the people, they wake up one day and they realize like, this is not working. This is not okay, the conditions are not good, we don't have enough money, we don't have enough food, we don't have the supports that we needed. And the people we're living during that time have to recognize that there's a crisis, they identify it, they can name it, and these great individuals try to find a way out of this difficult situation. And they realize that something's very terribly wrong and they need to move forward. So step one is recognizing that you have a problem. Step two, is when a certain person, um, an individual, or a group of people start to formulate an alternative idea, a some sort of plan to be able to change the difficult situations that they're in. 
step three would be for them to apply and put into practice a very set organized solution of of not just complaining about it, right? Sometimes I do this, I like to do this, I like to come home from work and complain about my day, right? And sometimes I just do it just to vent. But sometimes when we complain, and sometimes this comes from the man, uh, I don't know if any of you there has ever experienced this, where like, you're like, oh, I'm just complaining, 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 and your husband or a friend will give you advice, and this is what you have to do. And you're like, I just wanna complain, I just wanna vent. That's not a mapecha. A mapecha is when you realize that it's really bad, and you complain about it, but you begin to formulate a way in order to make it better. You know, the American Revolution, it wouldn't have been enough for the people to just complain. Oh, the British, right? They're taxing us. It's so difficult. You know, they send their troops in here. They make us do things their way. We don't want to do it. Had they complained, we wouldn't have had America. They just sat and complained that they didn't do anything about it. So here, in stage three, they need to be able to create a method of change, a plan that they are going to change and move forward. And step four would be that that plan that they've implemented have a group of people to be able to carry through with that plan. So in Hebrew, that's called shmiras hapechaladoros, that there has to be students or people following the revolution that are going to put it into put it into action. So for example, let's go back to the American Revolution, right? We had some great people, George Washington and, you know, Alexander Hamilton, right? They wrote up the, you know, the documents, they're going to be independent from 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 Europe, and then they put it into place and they set up a system. They set up the system of democracy, they set up the amendments, right? So there has to be a means of continuing their ideas that they put into place during the time of the revolution, and that has to be passed down from students. Okay. And that is how it's going to stay forever. That's how it's going to be true for all generations. So now let's take a look at Hasidas for a second. Step one, Hasidas identified that there was a tremendous crisis in the Jewish people. They identified this crisis as the crisis of the Jewish people when it comes to the end of time. Okay, so we have a real big problem. Okay, the state of the Jewish people, it's not working out, it's not good. Step two, they really did propose a plan, a solution to fix this crisis. Step three was that Hasidus and the early students of the Baal Shem Tov, and we'll get into that, they came out with a very practical plan of how to fix all the difficulty. And step four, Hasidus also set up extraordinary tzaddikim and talmidim, students who were able to pass the, the, the derech, the ways of the Baal Shem Tov, into the future, and that it should really be until the end of time. So we're still experiencing this now. So we obviously see that the, the, the revolution of Hasidus is MS because it's here literally till the end of time. Okay, so now let's try to understand what was the Mahapecha, what was the revolution at that time? So the crisis for the Jewish people was a very clear, crisis. It was a real big problem. Growing up, I, I don't know if anybody else used to do this, I used to read the Jewish press and I used to read the um, the story of the Golem. Anybody remember this story, the Maharal? And it used to be like, it, it was like the original, it was like before the Circle magazine, like this was the only Jewish cartoon that I used to read and like used to read stories of like the Jewish people in Europe and the pirates and it was like, Oh my gosh, like every day, like thousands of people being slaughtered and dying and like having to reach out. This was like my, this was the early onset like of Jewish comics. And this is literally the picture that was painted in my mind was very, very bleak of the Jewish people. 
So there were actually two, um, two crises. There was a physical crisis, okay? There was the people, we're gonna talk about how difficult their life was, and then there was also a spiritual crisis, okay? So the crisis was twofold. As far as physical, the gezeros that the Jewish people had upon them was so, so scary. There was a time period called Gezeros Tachatat where they say that 25% of the Jewish population was wiped out during the time of those Gezeros. So it was a really, really difficult time for the Jewish people. There, were, there was no home there that did not suffer a loss, that you know kids were taken to the army or the Jewish people were beaten and you know the Crusades and whatever it was, all these difficulties were slowly building up in the Jewish people and there were cities and villages and towns of people who were literally wiped off the face of this planet. Jewish people, the homes, it was devastation. Women and, and, and young girls, women being raped, embarrassment. It was one of the lowest states of the Jewish people that they had ever been in, literally since the time of the destruction of Beis HaMikdash. You know, sometimes like when, I, when we're reading Eicha and I, and I read of the horrors that happened to the Jewish people like during the Kinos, this was comparable to the time of the destruction of Beis HaMikdash. That's how bad it was. And we have to understand that even before, while all this difficulty was happening, there was another terrible tragedy that happened to the Jewish people, and that was the story of the false Mashiach of Shapsai Tzvi. Now, Shapsai Tzvi was a very dynamic, intellectual, brilliant person. He was very charismatic, and he knew upon certain ways to be able to convince people he was so charismatic and he was brilliant and, and, and he, was, he just had the charm. He convinced people that he was Mashiach. And the Jewish people were so ready because it was, conditions were so bad that they fell for it. They literally were like, oh my gosh, here he is. It's time to fulfill all the nevuos of the times of Mashiach. And people were so ready for it and so excited, they literally jumped on the bandwagon. Now, huge tummy de Chachamim were seduced by the teachings of Shabzai Tzvi. It wasn't just like the regular people, the town, the townspeople and the villagers. These were big, big tzaddikim because they were looking for something. They were waiting and were like, oh, it has to be, it has to be Mashiach. And, and they, he brought so much Nechama and he brought so much Tikva and so much hope for the Jewish people. They, they couldn't wait for this. They were so excited for this. And then when, when they recognized that he wasn't, he, he wasn't Mashiach and that um, he converted to Islam at the end of his life and that he was a false Mashiach. There was a tremendous disappointment that settled into the Jewish people. They kind of got burnt. They're like, this is not, obviously not for us. And so there was a lot of emptiness. There was a lot of shallowness. There, was, there were people looking for hope and then they lost it. And this was the crisis that the Jewish people were now on. So the students of Baal Shem Tov recognized that there was a real physical, right, um, an emotional um, crisis. And Jewish life in Europe at that point was so unbearable. It was, the people did not have the Parnassa that we have now. They, they, their conditions were so restrictive and any money that they made, they had to give to the, to the landowners, to the pirates. And, and all these difficulties, these gazeros these that were set upon their lives made them so empty. They were so hopeless, they were so dry. And it's like, you know, if you, if Rabbi Moshe Weinberger explains, like if you were to paint a picture, like it would just have been black. There would not have been any pictures to describe this time period. And they were on such a high, and then this such a crash from recognizing that Shabbat Tzvi was not Mashiach, that it really, really emptied us out. And a huge, and, and a huge part of the Jewish nation just kind of gave up. They gave up physically, they gave up spiritually, they, they were just, they were ready to go. 
um, they were like so frustrated. Like, how could Hashem fill us with so much hope and get us so excited? And then, and then this happens. They were really empty. Now, that was physically. Spiritually, the Jewish people were in such a difficult place because when they finally did have the strength and the courage after working an entire day and night in the fields, and then they made their way to shul to like get a minion or finally maybe during the week they couldn't make it, but Shabbos they were able to make it and they finally made their way to shul. What would, what would they be greeted with? They were not greeted with, uh, you know, five course Kiddush and, and all the delicacies that you can imagine. They were greeted by the Rabbanim of the shul, hacking them, giving them musr, telling them that Mashiach's not coming because they don't learn Torah, telling the women because they're not sneeze enough that this is why all these gazeras are happening. You know, we tend to do that. You know, there are a lot of people who love to like find answers, right? Like after the Holocaust, right? Oh, it's because you're talking in shul, this is what happened. To, for a person who's so broken and so empty physically and spiritually to hear that he's the cause of the misery, I mean, there can't be anything worse. Like how, how much more of a crisis are you going to cause, right? And to think about it, the average Jew at that time, even though it's difficult for us to understand, right, after many of us be, are able to have a yeshiva education, they were really illiterate. They were not able to learn the way that we're able to learn. They didn't have access to Svarim and, 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 and to Gemaras to be able to learn. And the only thing that they knew was what they saw by their parents. And at this point, their parents were themselves pretty tzibrachim, right? So we have this like bleak situation where people are ignorant and people don't have the ability to learn because they're so stressed out about where their money's gonna come the next day, where their food is gonna come the next day. And here they are, and they're in a place where it's, it's so bitter, they're so disconnected, and there's such a disconnect from the leadership. The leadership is not seeing them. The leadership is saying like, you know, you guys need to be learning more Torah. You guys need to be working on your tzniyas, and that's gonna bring Mashiach. They don't wanna hear this. And when they did hear their, 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 um, their Shabbos, a Gadol Drasha, right? Or the Drasha that they heard on Shabbos, it was all concepts that were so foreign from them that they weren't able to connect. It was like deep, what we call in Hebrew, pilpulim. It's like going, you know, bringing this Rashi and bringing this one and this one and this one. And it's not even something that they connected to or knew of. Um, so really, really a very, very bleak picture. And that is the darkness to which Hashem was able to bring the light of the Baal Shem Tov to. The light of Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, um, which is eventually going to bring us to the light of Mashiach. So now the question is like, why did Hashem have to wait such a long time to be able to bring the light of Mashiach? Like, why did it have to take so long for him to reveal these secrets of the Torah? So that's something that we're going to be trying to answer over the next four classes. But we know something for sure, that in the year when the Baal Shem Tov was born, which actually it's, there's um, a little disagreement. We don't know exactly what year he was born. Some say 1698, some say 1700. He was born in a village, in a small village, and his, his, his life can actually be divided into two parts. The first part would be considered the hidden part, the Hester, where he was learning and he was growing and he was working on himself and becoming somebody great. And then at the age of 36, where there was like this hiskalas, this revelation of who he truly was. So we have the Hester and we have the hiskalas, which is the enlightenment, just being able to bring the light to this world. And until he was 36 years old, 
he was very hidden. He was so hidden that his own brother-in-law, Reb Gershon Kitzover, which we're going to learn about a letter that he wrote to him, he was even horrified that his sister would marry such an ignorant person. He, you know, he was so hidden to the world that his own brother-in-law didn't recognize that. Now, from um, the day that he turned 36, that was when he started to reveal himself. And from, it was actually Shavuos, Shavuos of 1734. He began to be, in Hebrew, what we call poel, to be able to start to give over the secrets of the Torah that he was sharing. And at that point, he began to amass a few students to be able to be the ones who were going to pass on the baton of this revolution. And he was able to live long enough to be able to establish some of the deep foundations of Hasidus to the students. And through those Talmudim, through the Magami Mezrich, through um, the original, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, you'll see we'll start to learn that he was able to use those students as pathways, as channels, to be able to bring his teaching. So it wasn't only a theory, it wasn't only uh, an idea in their head that they're going to revolt against this difficult time. It was actually a real plan, a practical plan, a mahalach, a derach, a way that his students were going to begin to teach his plan. And we we're going to learn about it. Um, and they began to teach not just the scholars, not just the rabbanim and the rabbis of the shul, but really through the Magid and through the Bardetchever and through the Balatanya, this plan that he had began to be spread and they began to teach others. Now, all of Hasidus can be explained through this one very famous letter, which we're not going to learn tonight, we're going to learn next week. This letter that the Baal Shem Tov writes, it's the only Ksavyad, the only actual handwritten thing that we have from the Baal Shem Tov, where he learns, I mean, we learn about one of his ascents to Shemayim. He goes up to the heavens and he actually has, it's very famous, he has a meeting with Mashiach. And he asks him the very famous question, when are you going to come? And he not only has a meeting with Mashiach, but he also has a meeting with you know, his partner in crime, with the Satan, and he speaks to him as well. And then he descends into this world, he writes down what he heard and what he saw, and he uses those points that Mashiach said to be able to teach all the lessons of Hasidus to eventually be able to bring Mashiach. So now the question is, what is the secret of the Hasidus? What is the, what is the, the Nakuda, the one main point that I want to give over to you tonight that Hasidus really, really brought to this world? Like, what is the, what is the Chiddush of the Baal Shem Tov, right? We've had, we've had incredible people. We've had, right, we had Moshe Rabbeinu, who's able to transmit Torah. We had the Rambam, we had the Ramban, we had Rashi, we had, we had Rabbi Shem Yochai, we had the Arizal. What was different about the Baal Shem Tov that he brought to this world that began to spread the light of Mashiach. So what he taught us, and, 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 and we have to understand this, it's very, very, very deep, and I don't want to put down anything when it comes to Limit HaTorah. What Hasidus taught was, and this was against everything that maybe the people were saying, and maybe this is why a lot of people fought Hasidus in the, in the beginning, is that Limit HaTorah, learning Torah, and doing mitzvos is a means to an end. It's not the main purpose that we are here. To get to the purpose of why we are here, we learn Torah and we do mitzvot. 
But what's the main reason why we are here? What's the purpose of us being here on this world? Is to be able to connect us to our purpose. The, 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 to learn the Torah and do the mitzvahs is connected to our purpose. And what is that? The Baal Shem Tov brought this idea down to the world. That the ultimate purpose of this world is to have a direct encounter, a direct relationship with Hashem, the creator of this world. And to be able to experience in your every single day life, in your moments of your life, what it's like to have a living, breathing relationship with Hashem. And all of a sudden, when he put this message out there, all the outsiders, all the farmers, all the regular people, all the, the guys who filled up the entire men's and all the women who filled up the entire women's section, realize that they are no longer outsiders. They're no longer sitting there as second-class citizens because they're not able to read and learn from the Torah and they're not able to spend every living moment learning Torah. All of a sudden they realize, and this was through the teachings of Al Shem Tov, that you're eating and you're drinking and your relationships with your mother and your relationships with your children and when you are changing the tire on your, the wheels on your wagon, when you're greasing those Everything that you're doing, you're greasing your wheels of your wagon, you're cooking supper, you're making Shabbos again, right? Everything that you're doing, all those moments are of messianic proportions. What you are doing is bringing Mashiach closer every single minute. And all of those moments that we have, whether it's doing laundry, I just ordered five loads of laundry, right? Whether we're serving supper or meal planning or meal prepping or whatever it is or preparing clothing the night before we, the kids go to school so they're, they're ready in the morning. Whatever you are doing has potential to have a relationship with Hashem. And that every single thing is God. Every single thing is Hashem. Every moment that we are living is a potential opportunity to connect to Hashem. And all of a sudden, the tremendous darkness that the Jewish people were feeling, the heaviness, the, the emptiness, the, 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 the parrots and the taxes and, and, and the being ignorant and not being able to learn and not being able to understand a Rashi, all of a sudden, from that place of darkness, that little Jew who was so broken, literally who couldn't even lift his head up because he was just beaten by, 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 his, by his landowner who told him, you know, you have to pay your taxes and he didn't have enough money, he didn't have the, he didn't have the money to pay and he was so beaten. All of a sudden, he hears this and he hears the sound of the Baal Shem Tov saying that your life is worth living. Every single moment that you are here on this world is an opportunity for you to connect to Hashem. And for the first time, since the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, the Jewish people began to sing. And this is an incredible concept because, you know, if you think about during the time of after the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, and the Jewish people going into Galas, and then they were coming out of Galas, and going back into Galas, and then being separated, and then all these tragedies, Tachetat and Chapsai Tzvi, you can't imagine there was much time to fabrain, right? There wasn't that much time to, to sit and have a kumzit and to enjoy each other's company. People were so broken. And all of a sudden they realized that while they're in their difficult moments, and while they're in their everyday mundane opportunities, they can also sing because that's a moment of connecting to Hashem. And music started coming back alive. You know, there, there were no nigunim composed. I mean, they were, what we know, there are piyutim, like there are little, you know, there are paragraphs, there's nusach, right? But like, tell me a song from the times of the 12-1500s, nothing. And all of a sudden comes the Baal Shem Tov and he brings this to the world. 
and music and song come back. And that's the song that's going to bring us back to the times of, to, to bring us back to Mashiach, to the third base of Mikdash. And it's not going to just be the Levim who are going to be able to stand there by the base, base, by the base of Mikdash and sing and use their instruments. It's going to be not just the Talmidei Chamim and not the big Rabbanim, but it's going to be the farmers and it's going to be the men and the women and the children and the broken people. They're going to be able to get up and to join in this song. And that's, by the way, we, that's a big part of Thank You Hashem is definitely, definitely music. So I'm going to end here. And what we're going to pick up next week is we're going to begin to read the letter that the Baal Shem Tov wrote to his brother-in-law, Rav Gershon Kittiver, And that will tell us the details of what his conversation was with Mashiach and how me and you and all of us here listening are going to be able to take those teaching and bring us to a time where we're going to be able to get to see Mashiach. So um, I'm going to end here. Uh, thank you so much, all of you, for joining. If anybody has any questions about this topic, please feel free to message me on Thank You Hashem Instagram, on my own Instagram, at Fagy Bloom. And um, I'm really excited about this series. So thank you all for joining. And have an amazing night.